Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Mr. Dorides, Dr. Dorides, uh, Ms. D. Natalie. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. And this is a special podcast. Uh, we've got an old friend, Dan White. Dan, how are you? I'm well, Mark. Yeah, you. Here. Yeah, when, when so for, uh, for podcast listeners, you know that Dan was uh, working with us for, I don't know, how many years did you work at uh, Moody's Analytics, Dan? 13. 13 years. And you moved over to AEP, the electric utility in headquartered in Ohio. When did you do that? We moved over in March. In March, in March. And how's it going? You miss us? I miss you guys terribly. He's just uh, making I love, that yeah, I I love so. working here at AEP, but I, live, I miss the people at Moody's terribly. You guys are awesome. Yeah, I, we miss you too. We miss you a lot. Uh, and uh, you are the chief economist of AEP, right? I am. I'm the chief yeah. economist managing, it's a mouthful of a title, managing director of economics and supply forecasting. Oh, very cool. And, uh, and uh, you have a team of folks there, a number of economists, statisticians, or who? who, who we what? do. We, we've yeah. got three teams of uh, economists and data scientists who do a number of different forecasts. So one team forecasts on or focus on load forecasting. So how much electricity are we, our clients or our customers going to need and, and where are they going to need it? Uh, we have another team that focuses on supply forecasting. So how much is it going to cost to produce uh, a kilowatt of electricity, you know, all the different ways, you know, coal, gas, nuclear, renewables. Um, we forecast that across the whole country, too, to kind of see how we should be planning for the future to provide the electricity we need to everybody. And then I've got a third team who is really amazing because they can translate what those two teams put together into common English so that our mm. executives and our stakeholders and investors can can understand all of it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think people appreciate how complex uh, a electric utility is. You know, the just the engineering and the science, and the, I mean, the whole shoot, just the the process itself. It's an incredibly massive and complex uh, system. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't. There's a lot that goes on to make sure that the lights come on when you hit the the switch. Yeah. The, uh, the guys here, I've got a bunch of engineers that work for me now, and they're very gracious with me in terms of dealing with teaching me remedial chemistry and physics and things that I never thought I would oh, wow. need to know again. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind to them when it comes to financial modeling, and they're kind to me when it comes to physics, and we, we give each other grace. Got comparative advantages. You can, exactly. can teach them that. There you go. Exactly. And, and AEP, tell us about AEP. That's a very large utility in the middle of the country. Yeah, we're uh, so American Electric Power. We uh, own and operate regulated utilities across 11 states, um, from Michigan all the way down to Texas. So, let's see if I can remember: Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas. Okay, so you you your footprint is really a big chunk of America. It is. It's very. It's a very diverse kind of chunk of the middle of the country. Um, you know, we we are in a number of different states. We're usually the second largest um, provider in each one of those states, um, and uh, we have a lot of rural areas. But we also have some big major metropolitan areas like Columbus, which I'm I'm looking out at through my window um, here, Great town. And Tulsa and Corpus Christi, and a number of those kind of 
mid-tier in terms of size metro areas. But some metro areas that really do hit above their their weight when you look at their economic output. So, so uh, I, I thought it'd be wonderful to have you on just because I miss you and it's good to have you back on. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you were at Moody's Analytics, you were really focused on federal and state and local uh, policy, government policy and mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I want to come back to that at, at some point. And I promise I'm not going to ask you who's going to win the presidential I knew election. you would. I don't have to do an election I, model anymore. <laughs> yeah, we just dusted that off today, by the way. I had a meeting with um, uh, Brendan uh, Lacerda and Justin mm-hmm. Beckley, and we just uh, dusted that off. So uh, as I recall, and don't correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall, my model was better than your model. As I recall, I was the first person in the history of Moody's Analytics to get it wrong, running the model. So <laughs> that's quite the I was, distinction. Hold it. <laughs> I was the, the first one, not the only one, but the first one to get it wrong. Get it wrong? In 2016, I got it wrong. Oh, that's right. We got. Oh, that's the the Clinton uh, Trump election. We got that yep. you know badly wrong. Yeah, I yeah. was running. I happened to be running the model the first time it, it was wrong. Yeah, and for the go- folks out there that don't understand what the hell we're talking about, yeah, we have this election model. Electoral college level, uh, we predict uh, who's going to win each state, uh, and based on that, determine who's going to win the presidential election. We've been doing this for, uh, is it, I guess it's 25 years, some, some long period of time. And I think Gus Fauché did the first one in like 2000 to 2004, a million years ago. Chief economist of PNC, who used to be mm-hmm. at Moody's Analytics as well. And uh, so we're uh, the last the last go around when we had um, uh, Bernard Yaros kind of managing things. Uh, we really extended out the modeling that we did, and we came down to three models to predict who's going to win the election at the electoral college level. And one was called the pocketbook model. One was called, I think, the un- unemployment model. One, I can't right now. I can't remember, but. Uh, See, I blacked it out because you're yeah. we were all but yours is more accurate than mine, so I've kind of blocked yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, we just we just dusted that off, and maybe we'll come back and talk about. We won't talk about who's going to win the presidency, but maybe we can talk about policy in the context of all the the things that you're dealing with with regard to climate and and uh, the green transition and that kind of stuff. Uh, but anyway, so going back to the economy, uh, just well, let me frame how I think about the economy, and maybe Chris and Marissa, you can correct me or adjust what I say, but it, it, it's turning out that the economy is doing pretty darn well. I mean, 2023, calendar year 2023, even if the fourth quarter is soft, you know, no, very little growth, we're going to get GDP growth of about two and a half percent, which is pretty good. I mean, it, you know, most people would say, most economists, we would say that the economy's potential rate of growth, that rate of growth consistent with stable unemployment is around two Two and a half percent is pretty good. And despite that solid growth, uh, well, and we've got a lot of jobs, three million jobs are going to be created this year. Despite all that, unemployment uh, is low. It's, you know, below, you know, uh, remains very low. It's pushed up a little bit, but it remains very low around 4%. And I said, that's, that that's, I should say, in, despite all of that, inflation is moderating. Inflation seems to be coming in. So, you know, you kind of add it all up and, and I'll stop there for just a second. Chris, would you characterize the economy differently than I just characterized it in 2023? No, it certainly was, uh, well, for many, it was a bit of an upside surprise, right? 
I, I think even the optimists are surprised to the upside. So yeah, much That's more resilient than we anticipated. Right. Marissa, would you disagree with that characterization? No, I, I mean, I think it looks like growth is going to come in at least half a percentage point than even we were predicting at this time a year ago. Right. right. So we were always on the optimistic avoid recession side, but it's even better than we thought. Right. Right. So that's kind of the the history. Is that consistent with what you're observing in your business, Dan, in terms of demand for electricity? Uh, we're definitely seeing the economy much stronger than we expected it to be. It's proven mm. to be much more resilient to high interest rates. I, I didn't think we could handle interest rates as high as they've been for as long as they've been as gracefully as we have, certainly. Um, when we look at our load, uh, our load is growing, but our load is growing because of some kind of abnormal gains in um, commercial growth. If you look at the the underlying industrial growth and the residential growth, which is really more closely connected to the underlying economy, we're still seeing a, an economy that's growing, but it's slowing pretty significantly. And that might be to some of the things that I've seen you write about. Actually, I think all three of you write about it sometime or another is that um, a lot of our customers are in that bottom, you know, two quintiles of the income distribution. And so mm -hmm. we're seeing seeing things slow much more quickly for them than we are for the kind of the economy as a whole. One of the things we saw or we've seen a lot is our, our load per residential customer. So usage is down. So the amount of electricity that individual households are using has been down pretty considerably over the last year. Some of that is secular, like people going back to the office and so maybe they were working from home five days a week and maybe now they're going in the office three days to so their electricity usage is going down but um, we've seen it and this has been something that surprised me we've seen much uh, bigger reaction to changes in underlying prices and underlying incomes uh, in terms of electricity usage than i would have thought you, you go to school and you see you know in electricity is like the definition of an inelastic good you don't expect yeah. much change but we've seen a much more elastic response in terms of usage especially in those of our customers who are in the lower end of the income spectrum to higher prices and slower growing incomes than we expected to see for sure oh that's interesting in uh, kind of the way you framed it i think is how most utilities think about demand for electricity they break it down into residential so that's you and I as households and the electricity we consume at home, uh, commercial, industrial, that would be manufacturing activity, I guess maybe construction as well. Would that, or was yeah, that? Yeah. So the, the good way to think about it is commercials, almost all your services in terms uh, of makes codes right. and industrials, most of your, your goods producers. Got it. Not exactly, but close. Got it. And so if you, if you look at the residential, what you're saying is sales, uh, the, the demand for electricity has been on the softish side and that particularly among low income households. And you're saying they're almost all utilities, certainly nationwide jacked up their prices for electricity, particularly in 20 end of 21 into 2022, going to the higher cost of, of energy, you know, natural gas and yeah, well, yeah, there's two components, right? So there's the fuel and then there's the non-fuel. So the fuel, electric utilities, they just pass along whatever the fuel price is. So if yeah. our fuel price goes up, we just we, we, we don't make through. any money off fuel. We just pass along right. whatever the cost is to customers. So non-fuel revenue is where the, we um, we recover the cost of all the, the um, capital in, in structure, infrastructure investment that we've made. And so, you know, the underlying fuel costs have gone up, which isn't really a price it's for us. It's not the price of electricity, it's the price of fuel. 
But, you know, there because the cost of infrastructure has gone up so much with inflation, with all the steel and, and some of those things that have gone the last couple of years, there are some parts of the country that have seen um, electricity rates increase pretty considerably in the last two, three years. Yeah. And you're saying the folks in the bottom part of the income distribution, you, you mentioned the bottom two quintiles. So the bottom. Oh, so yeah, th- those are households making less than like fifty five thousand a year. Right. They they are they're they're very sensitive to uh, that price and to any fluctuation in their in their income. <clears throat> and they, they've been very cautious and, and judicious in their use of electricity. Yeah, much more so than I would have expected looking at. So we look at the amount of customers and then we look at usage per customer. Mm -hmm. We're fortunate in our footprint. You know, we've got some really fast growing areas, especially Ohio and Indiana and Mm -hmm. Texas. So our customer counts are up pretty Mm -hmm. significantly year over year. Mm -hmm. Our usage per customer is falling so much that our overall residential load is actually declining this year relative Mm -hmm. to a year ago. So how do people conserve it? They keep the thermo- temperature down lower in the in the winter and and uh, most of it's yeah thermostat that thermostat, kind of stuff yeah um uh, you know it could be not putting up christmas lights it could be a number of different things that they can huh. kind of uh, pull back but it's been significant at one point this year our, our usage per residential customer was down almost three percent which you know in such an inelastic good as, as electricity that's really considerable yeah interesting you control for te- is that controlled for the temperature yeah, so we we weather normalize all of our data, so it's all based on weather normalization. Um, but again, it, a lot of it is those lower income customers, and and even though you know wage growth is still pretty healthy and prices are coming down, one of the things that we've been looking at really closely, and I'd be curious, I, I think I stole it. It's a, it's a chart I stole from you, probably, Chris. Um, the, the amount of cash that people have in their bank accounts from the mm-hmm. New York Fed. Mm-hmm. When we look at that. Uh, adjusted for inflation by income quintile, which is why I keep talking about those, how we look at it. Mm. Um, the two lowest quintiles, they're below where they were in 2019. So they've taken all that pandemic stimulus money and they've, it's, they've spent it, it's gone. Uh, but the folks who are in the top two, uh, you know, three fifths of the income distribution, they're either at or above. So I think they're really driving a lot of the economy and there's some parts of the economy that are really getting left behind. And, and it, those are our customers. And so our focus has to be on our customers and making sure that they're able to afford the, the electric bills that we're, we're giving them. Hmm. And, and you can see the folks in the top part of the distribution or the middle top part of the distribution, they're, still using electricity like they typically do they've not pulled back in any significant degree yeah it's tough to track one for one but when we look at some of the counties that have higher um uh, average incomes and Mm -hmm. lower average incomes we can see a dispersion in terms of their usage Hmm. for sure that's what about uh what about efficiency i I think uh overall the economy has gotten much more efficient with electricity usage oh sure that a factor here that there's some secular trends too so like the it return to work is kind of a, a, a trend that we're seeing. It, most of that's played out because if you're going to go back to the office, you've probably already gone back to the office. Um, but everything is getting more efficient. So as you know, we we see you know all the appliances in people's homes are getting more right. efficient as we start to see turnover in appliances. That happens for sure. So there's there's definitely a secular secular decline in usage, but we have seen some cyclical declines as well. So if we what it really started 
you know, in earnest last August, really, when we look at our data, which is kind of when inflation, a couple months after inflation kind of peaked out in the summer of 2022. So because that's when we saw it, and, we, and we've also slowly seen the cash kind of disappear from from bank accounts in those lower income households, you know, people don't feel as, as, as wealthy as they did, and inflation is still pretty high. Um, it's causing people to, to pull back where they can't. So that's the residential piece. Now, the how about the industrial piece? How's that faring? The industrial piece is, is doing better than residential, but it has definitely softened pretty considerably over the last six months. When we look at some of our mm. large industrial customers, they're not running at, at peak loads the same way that they were a year ago or even two years ago. So they're 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 still running, and it's not like we're seeing a huge pullback in industrial growth, but they're not running at full capacity compared to even just maybe six, nine months ago. Hmm. In, in, uh, I assume in your footprint the, that uh, the vehicle industry is a pretty significant customer, I would think, right? Yeah, for Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, especially. Yeah. In, in the UAW strike probably would have an impact, wouldn't it? Because it affected yeah. production... It did. It had a very small impact, though. I mean, because okay. we've we've been through this before, and so we can go back and compare to previous <laughs> instances of, of UAW labor stoppages. Um, I think the way that they handled the UAW strike this year really limited the impacts, both economically and certainly on our load, because they they were very targeted in in which plants that they were were stopping work at, as opposed to just a mass walkout of all the UAW facilities, and so. I think um, it, it certainly seemed to be very effective for the UAW, but it also seemed to be very effective in terms of limiting the the impact and kind of spreading the impact out. So it wasn't just, you know, Indiana, Michigan that got hit. Um, it was kind of plants all over the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, the UAW strike had an impact, but a really modest one. Can you tell from your data if the if the softness in industrial is broad based or whether it's a sector or two or it's pretty broad broad based, broad based. but I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. So one of the a couple of the areas where we've seen the biggest pullback, and we have some theories of ours, but I'm curious uh-huh. what you think. Um, chemical production, um, rubbers, and plastics manufacturing. Um, huh really pulled back more than usual and you know our footprint is is kind of unique but i'm curious if that's something you guys are seeing nationally or if that's we have a couple theories about why it might be happening in our area but i'm curious if it's but i'm just i i not something i thought about at all but that doesn't stop that doesn't stop me at all from telling you what i think (laughs) or at least throw out a theory you know i knew it wouldn't that's why i want to hear yeah yeah okay i'll could it be just that their cost structure is a lot higher? I mean, those are very uh, energy-intensive industries, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, rely on oil, natural gas, and I guess electricity. And the price for all energy rose very sharply, obviously, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we saw oil over 100 bucks a barrel. We saw natural gas. I can't even remember how. It got to 7 bucks per million BTU, I think, at one point. Yeah, um, it was, um, yeah, almost seven bucks, um, middle of last year. So. Yeah, right. We're back down below three, but you know, that, uh, so maybe just the margins just aren't there. Right. Uh, and that has crimped, you know, production. I, I don't know. Does that resonate at all? Is that a possibility? It could a little bit. The only thing yeah. that, that makes me worry about that is that, you know, petroleum in particular oil has come down 
Yeah. And so the theory that some of our guys had, especially our guys down in Texas, was uh-huh. that a lot of those industries tend to be exporters for the U.S. Uh-huh. Oh, the strong and dollar. The U.S. dollar has been so uh, strong. That, that, that makes more sense. Yeah, you were, you were setting me up. You should have just said that. No, I was hoping you were going to tell me something. <laughs> I, I, I was hoping yeah, you could, you could take back to them. the U.S. dollar because yeah. the U.S. dollar is not going to reverse anytime soon. And if not, then we're, you know, we're not going to see those guys pick it up. Yeah, that no, that makes sense. That does make a lot of sense. Uh, Chris, Marissa, any other theories? This, this is what we do for a living, right? I mean, <laughs> we try to explain these economic phenomena. Like, I don't know, Chris, Marissa, any other theories as to what's going on there? I I thought about higher oil prices and petrochemical, imp, you know, inputs yeah. into these sectors. I mean, could it be possible that they're buying? oil you know they're locked into longer term contracts and yeah. and you know they bought at a high price and it just mm-hmm. hasn't trickled down yet yeah i don't know which i got that special shout out to chad burnett from our texas office who, who came up with the dollar theory so that's right a good now, theory well you know i'm i'm always leery of answering a question like that because i my brother did that to me once uh he threw up this chart as Carl, my brother worked with us and, uh, he threw, he run, he started the data group and now manages the business, our business, but he threw up this chart and, you know, the chart was going this and that and this and that. And I'm sitting there explaining why it was going up here and going down here, going up here, going down there. He goes, Oh shoot. I forgot to multiply by negative one. <laughs> so the whole chart went, went in the other direction. And of course I'm, I'm pretty good at, going with the flow of course that's right you know that's here's, even better it's even better this works even better so uh it's very funny uh probably that on purpose you know it's so funny he didn't he actually didn't do it it was just, just so hilarious so hilarious uh anyway so okay so residential is kind of weakish particularly for low income households okay industrial is kind of softish uh as you, you point out, you're starting to see some softness in chemicals and rubber and plastics. Um, uh, what about commercial? Are you seeing a life there? Commercial is going gangbusters, ah, um, okay. gangbusters, but only one specific part of commercial load. And I'll let you guess what it is. Data, is data centers, data centers, crypto. It's crypto. It's not all crypto. There's, AI it's and crypto. Centers, but there is crypto in there. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's data centers, and it's um, not oh, just yeah. you know the fly-by-night guys. It's Amazon and Microsoft and Google and all these guys just cannot build them fast enough. Um, and we've been very fortunate because we you know we're prescient enough to invest in some uh, really stout and robust uh, transmission infrastructure in Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and uh, in Texas um, that. Um, the data centers want to be in our service territory because there's that huge transmission infrastructure there. They, mm. can, um, they can get turned on much quicker than they can in some other parts of the country. So we're up. Uh, I think our overall load will probably finish the year somewhere up uh, just north of 2%. But our commercial load is up almost 8%. Mm. And if we took data centers out of our commercial load, our commercial load would be flat. Mm. And I guess oh, wow. da- data centers would also yeah. be, I think, where AI would show up, artificial intelligence. Exactly. So AI, yeah. all the server farms, things like that. Right. Uh, and some crypto um, in Ohio, in, in the Northeast, we don't see much crypto. It's all, you know, data centers, especially hyperscalers. 
Um, most of our crypto seems to be in Texas. Okay. Um, there and it, it's hard to, to gauge where they are or what they're doing because a lot of them are behind the meter. So they'll build a big wind farm and they'll build the crypto servers behind the wind farm. And so uh. they'll you know, use the wind farm to feed the data centers and only pull from the system if they need it kind of thing. Interesting. I was reading this New York Times piece that the Chinese crypto firms are building these kind of huge facilities very close to generation uh, plants. Yeah. yeah. That, that sounds a little scary. I don't know. There's a, a lot of things that are uh, that we need to know a lot more of with yeah. the load and, right. and what's coming. So. so, okay, so you add it all up and what's your takeaway that the economy is kind of making its way through, but just not powering through, feels like. Yeah, I think the the main takeaway is that the economy is definitely slowing. It's not it's not slowing, slowing, but hmm. it's slowing for sure. Yeah, and it makes me wonder if we don't go into next year. I mean, I think your guys' forecast is for it to slow pretty considerably mm -hmm. going into next year. Uh, I think it's one of those situations where you know once we get to, especially going into the election, um, you're going to have people coming out of the woodwork arguing: Are we in a recession? Or are we not in a recession? And we're probably not, certainly mm -hmm. not by the traditional two consecutive quarters of GDP, but it might mm -hmm. be kind of like 2001 where you go from this four and a half percent growth down to a one percent growth and, and, you know, unemployment's increasing and people just feel a lot worse than it really is, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I was looking at a chart of, uh, speaking of charts, of uh, uh, electricity production, industrial production, electric utilities, which I guess is do you look at that as well? Is that a pretty good, this is the Federal Reserve data, good, reasonably good measure of output, you know, production? It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. not um, It's not as granular as we'd like to see it. So we have our yeah. own data that we look at, but in terms of top line numbers, it's not bad. Okay, so if you look at that, you know, it, it, if you go back in, in uh, a few decades ago, like in the, certainly in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, I guess even in, into the 90s, it looked like, the increase in production was very steady, you know, very consistent with growth in the economy um, and really showed no very little cyclicality. I mean, even in recessions, it looked like it kind of managed through without, you know, much of a slowdown. But in the last, I'd say, 25 years, I want to say, uh, it's gone completely flat. There's been no appreciable change one way or the other in industrial production. Oh, excuse uh, of electricity. So, it, it, I guess that just reflects the to what Chris was saying earlier that we're all just getting better at we're becoming less electricity electric intensive, or at least we had been up to this point in time, and we're getting more efficient in our use of electricity. Is that what that because it's no longer kind of a barometer of <clears throat> if you look at that data, you'd say it's no longer a barometer of you know general economic conditions. I think it, in part, yeah. So, I mean, we've gotten a much more energy efficient in the last 25, 30 years and we're becoming more energy efficient. But, um, you know, that, that could also be continued on some of the demographic trends we've seen. The U.S. population slowed pretty considerably over that time. We don't have that same household growth that we had before. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have as much industry coming online in the United States that would, or at least over the last 20, 30 years, we haven't had as much industry come online that would rely on that electricity. Um, but I would suggest that that's going to change in the next couple decades because of the electrification of, you know, the U.S. economy. 
even as we get more energy efficient, there's just more things that run on electricity now. Um, and with the data centers and, you know, all the, the dependence on AI and all that kind of stuff that mm. is going to need more electricity to, to be able to produce. And, and even some of the new ways that we're producing electricity, you need electricity to create some of those fuels like, you know, hydrogen, you need a lot of electricity to create hydrogen, um, depending on how you're doing it. Mm. Um, and so th there's just going to be a huge increase in demand for electricity over the next 10, 20 years. It's a, mm. it's a really fascinating time to be a part of the industry. One of the things I, I, you know, when I came in, all the people keep telling me, you know, you're lucky you're here because this is not how it, it normally looks. This is not normal, what we're seeing in terms of demand and all the changes that are going on. Because I keep saying, you know, I, I don't have the industry experience that you have. What should we be seeing here? And they said, you don't need the industry experience because I've never seen this before. And I've been here. Oh, interesting. Years. So, it's, and it's you didn't even you didn't even it. mention electric vehicles in that list of things that would power. You didn't even mention that. Yeah, well, electric vehicles are out there, um, but they're I think they're going to be much slower than we thought. I actually have a good, I have a good um, statistic about electric vehicles. Okay, we'll save it. Save it because yeah. we're we're gonna play the stats game, right? Okay. And I got a great story on EVs, so maybe we'll come back to the transition to green a little bit later. But I did want to move on to energy prices uh, because uh, uh, your the electric utility industry is a large consumer of natural gas, in particular. Sure. A little bit of oil, coal, you know, obviously nuclear, but it's mostly about natural gas, and uh, the. And I, I'm sure you follow the the oil markets, you know, carefully. One big surprise recently has been how uh, oil prices have fallen. You know, we were, if you go back a few weeks ago, certainly a couple of months ago, we were over ninety dollars a barrel, and it felt like oil prices were going to go a lot higher. I mean, we had Israel and Hamas and you know Russian sanctions and Chinese demand and Saudi cutbacks, and it just felt like it was going higher. But prices have come in, and and if you look at natural gas, that also is, it you know it's kind of been more stable, but it remains pretty low. I mentioned three dollars per million BTU. That's kind of the benchmark I've had in my mind. If it's below, if it's at or below three dollars, that's pretty low by historical standards. But above three, then it's starting to get a little higher. Mm -hmm. So has that surprised you that energy prices have come in like like it surprised us that that we've seen that kind of softness in energy prices, or is that? Something you expected? Um, I didn't expect them to spike up too high, but I thought they'd spike up at least a little bit because of what's going on in the Middle East. I was mm. really surprised that they didn't. You know, I thought we'd be at least for a couple of weeks talking about hundred dollar oil and everybody'd be freaking out. So the fact mm. that they've come down is is a bit of a surprise. I think I can't remember. I, I had I don't listen to the podcast as regularly as I should, Mark. But I went back mm. and I checked the last couple of weeks just to to make sure that I was up to date on things. And I think Marissa, you said something the other week about how the the growth in China. When that really bad economic data came in from China, that's when oil prices started to level off a bit, right? So it might be a, just a global demand issue or global demand impact. Is that right? And supplies up in the U.S. Yep. for sure. Yeah. There's more production, <laughs> especially in the U.S. Well, yeah, I mean, goes, Mark, you were talking about us being the marginal producer for a long time, right? I mean, that, those shale guys they can turn the spigot on pretty quick. Yeah, interestingly enough, we had a webinar today on uh, on oil and energy, natural gas markets. And one thing that came out of it was one of the big surprises was how much increased, the, how big the increase in production was in oil here in the United States. And, so, and we're now 
producing a record amount of oil. I think it's 13 million barrels a day, an all-time uh, an all-time high. Wow. And, yeah, and it and it's at the same time that the number of oil rigs has kind of been flat to down, uh, and it, and it goes to um, it, I'm I'm spouting back everything I just learned earlier today. Uh, it goes to these so-called unfinished wells. We've, there's a lot of wells that are oh the duck wells uh, duck wells the so-called duck duck is an acronym for something I can't uncomplete uncomplete yeah that's what it is drilled and uncompleted and apparently there it's a lot less costly to, to pull oil out of those wells than to go drill a new well which makes sense I guess and so the uh, oil producers here have been kind of using their inventory of of uh, un uncompleted wells to produce increased production. They can't do that forever. They got to start investing, uh, but that's yeah. been a key part of the story, which was, you know, very, very interesting. Uh, so you is in terms of the energy sources for AEP's electricity, is it, is it mostly natural gas that you use? We have really an all of the above strategy here um, mm. because, you know, we're, we're committed to, you know, reducing our carbon footprint and, and trying to be as sustainable as possible. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to make sure when our customers hit the light switch, something comes on. And so mm. for reliability purposes, we have to really go to everything. And so um, in our, our northeastern area, so PJM, uh, the RTO, uh, which, is basically, which is you guys in most of the Midwest, um, we have mostly natural gas, but we also have a pretty good coal footprint and um, a couple of renewables, but it's mostly coal, um, nuclear, and natural gas. And in the West, we call our Western companies, we know they're not really Western for everybody else, but, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, right. those guys, um, there's a lot of wind that's um, wind. on there, wind and, um, wind and coal and some natural gas that they, um, they supplement that with. Right. But, we expect that over the next five, 10 years, that coal's going to go away slowly and more of that natural gas is going to come on. But it's kind of interesting. You were talking, Mark, about the green energy transition. It, we're going to kind of hit a, a wall here in a bit. It was a lot of that coal nationally, not just AEP, but everywhere. That coal is falling off. And when you replace the coal with natural gas, the natural gas is more clean burning than coal. So you see a, a decline in, in emissions. But eventually, you know, even if you replaced all the coal, which you can't really do yet, if mm. you replace all that coal, then you kind of flatline in terms of your emissions. And so getting that natural gas off into other cleaner burning sources is where, you know, the really hard work comes in in terms of the energy transition. What, like no wind. solar. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Chris. No solar. Well, okay. solar and wind, you know, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So you need something you can turn on and turn off. Sure, so, sure. It's got to be right now when we do our modeling, our guys do our modeling, it looks like the most economical alternative is going to be um, a hybrid of natural gas and um, hydrogen being burned together um, will be cleaner. Um, I think that if you look at the, the EPA's, you know, 111D stuff that they've got coming out, they're trying to incentivize more people to burn uh, a, a mixture of, of natural gas and hydrogen together. And eventually moving the technology to the more of that mix is hydrogen instead of, of natural gas in order to bring that down. But there's a long way to go technologically before we're, we're there for that. Yeah. The one thing that's affecting natural gas prices, and again, I want to come back to green, the green transition, uh, is, uh, the high prices, the very high prices for natural gas in Europe 
uh, related to the Russian the sanctions on Russian natural gas, you know, particularly mm -hmm. Germany. And so that's created this opportunity to ship a lot of U.S. natural gas to Europe via LNG, liquefied natural gas, and, and mm -hmm. that, that's expanding out pretty rapidly. And that has put upward pressure. Natural gas prices are still very low here by you know, most historical standards, but they have pushed higher, and it feels like they're going to push even higher going forward just because uh, natural gas producers can make a lot of money, even with the shipping costs, in, in Europe. And so that means somewhat higher natural gas prices going forward. Is that kind of consistent with your thinking? Yeah, so we do see exports playing a bigger role. Um, we don't see, you know, we were talking to Chris Lafakis the other day. We don't yeah. see natural gas prices climbing quite as as high as as he does. I see. Um, <clears throat> mostly because, I mean, it, it, there are costs associated with it that maybe I, I think maybe the costs on the European side he might be underestimating a little bit mm. in terms of how expensive that's going to be. Um, but nonetheless, exports are going to make up a much bigger share of that. It, 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 natural gas, you know, used to be a very domestic thing to forecast. It was you only had to worry about production and, and um, demand on our side of the, the ocean. Um, but now it's a, it's much more global um, than we ever had before. And so you have to take in some of the, the more global um, trade flows, much more akin to to uh, oil than we had in the past. So it's a yeah. bit of a, a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about forecasting it yeah more of a global market it used to be just a domestic market now more, a little bit more global and, and it will be increasingly so just given the pipeline for new construction of lng you know facilities going forward but but interesting yeah it's going to take some time but yeah it's yeah. Gonna... yeah yeah europe's also tapping some other countries for natural gas right they algeria is supplying a lot and they're looking to the east so right u.s will yeah, be, be a, a big but they're there are some other players coming online too. So that could keep prices from rising too much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's play the, uh, the game stats game. Uh, and uh, Dan, I don't know if you remember this, but we each put forward a statistic. <laughs> the rest of the group tries to figure that out with the uh, clues and, and deductive reasoning and, uh, quest, uh, questions. And, uh, the best stat is one that's not so easy. You get it immediately. Not so hard. We never get it. And if it's, uh, uh, consistent with the topic at hand, all the better. Um, and uh, Marissa uh, really wants to go first here. So, uh, Marissa, you ready? Yes, but I always okay. go first. I yes. know you always go first. Yeah. You always go first. Yep, that's tradition. And uh, we're not going to break that, certainly not today. So, okay, fire away. All right. And Dan, you're going to play, right? You said you were going to play. Yep, I, mean, I may not get up. any of them correct, but I'm going to try. Somehow I feel like he's going to get them all. So all right, all... We'll go ahead. All right, far away. Uh, 1.15 million. Okay. Is it um, so something related to the energy industry? Electric, yes. Electric utility industry. Tangentially. Oh, okay. Energy more broadly. Is that the number of uh, charging stations nationwide? No. Did I, am I in the ballpark? Having to do with natural gas inventories. Mark is more in the ballpark. Okay. It's something like that. I knew, she, I knew she was going to go there. Yeah. 1.5 million. Yeah. Is it EV related? Like, it is EV related. Okay. 
a one point sales of EVs. Ah, yeah. that makes sense. That's it. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's for what month? That that's a different number than I heard last. This though. is through October. Yeah. This is from the Argonne National Lab data. Uh, this is sales in 2023 through the end of October of plug-in, bat either battery or hybrid EVs. So 1.15 million, that makes up 9% of all light-duty cars and trucks sold so far this year. And this is the first year it's breached a million. So last year, in 2022, 931,000-ish EVs were sold. Again, this is just plug-in EVs, right? And the share of all sales was 6.8%. So the share rose from about a little under 7% to 9% so far through 2023 over the prior year. Is that hybrid as well or just pure EV? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's plug-in. Plug so either plug-in ba all, all battery or plug-in okay. hybrid. So not, oh. not like a Prius, but like one that you've got to plug in. Right, now. right. Should I tell you my EV story? This is a good time. This to is a great you. time. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I fly into Orlando airport this a couple of weeks ago, going to a Moody's offsite in Florida. And, uh, you know, we have Avis rent a car and I go in and preferred. So I go, you, you know, you go right to your car. I go up right up to my car. I get in and also uh, immediately I'm totally confused. Uh, it didn't look like a car, but it was, you know, within five seconds, I realized, okay, this is an EV. I'm thinking, okay, I should know how to do this. You know, this is a good thing to learn to, to drive an EV. Uh, but I don't really want to do it now, <laughs> please. So I go back to the Avis uh, desk, you know, they have a desk. And I said, can I just switch this out for a, I, I said a, a normal car, meaning an internal combustion car. And they go, oh yeah, sure, no problem. But, you know, it may take two to three hours for you to get a car. So I said, oh, okay. All right. How hard can this be? So I get into the EV and by the way. Do you want to say what it was? Yeah, it was a key, because key, I loved it. It was a Kia Nero. Yeah, Kia Nero. okay. And I go, I, 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 oh, this is great. You know, dr no sound, drives well, uh, really well. Uh, the pickup is amazing. You know, you, you, you could get on the highway, you know, very quickly. No problem. Okay, and I'm driving along. I'm going to you know to my home in Vero, so that's uh, like a I don't know. Uh, it's an hour and a half, an hour forty five minute drive, and I'm looking down and I see you know these miles coming, these numbers coming down from two hundred and twenty five, two twenty four, two twenty three, and they're coming down pretty damn fast. <laughs> and it taunts on me that that's how many more miles I got to go. So then I'm like on the map quest. How many miles do I have? You know, do I need to get to Vero Beach? And I had plenty, you know, I, I got the Vero, I probably had 50 miles left or something. But, and by the way, I learned that, you know, by trial and error, if I had the air conditioning on and I'm blasting music, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the miles are coming <laughs> down fast, you know, especially in hot Florida. And so anyway, I get the Vero and I, and I, I, that next stop is Fort Lauderdale. So that's another, you know, trek. And there's no way I'm going to get from Vero to, uh, Fort Lauderdale without charging this up. I have to charge it. And I go, I have no idea how to charge this thing. So I go back to the Avis uh, place in, in Vero and I said, I just, please let me just get a 
and I, and, and I, uh, a normal, I called it a normal car, you know, them. you know what? They would not give it to me. They would not give it to me. They said, you have to charge the car. I go, I don't know how to charge the car. I don't even know where to go to charge the car. It's strange because, that they didn't tell you that when you rented it. You I, know? I know, right? I know, I know. Anyway, so, okay, I, they're not going to relent. And I, you know, I used my Zandy persuasion on them. and They ignored me. No, not happening. Uh, so I go, well, okay, uh, all right, I got to go charge it. I go find, they tell me, oh, the nearest place is a Wawa. Wawa, thank you, Wawa. They're in Florida. Wawa in Florida, that's awesome. And they have chargers. So I go to the Wawa. It's 20 minutes away on near 95. I pull in and I I'm, I'm there's two chargers and there's two cars getting charged and I'm looking at this and I go I have I don't have a clue you know what to do so I'm you googling how do you charge a car and then fortunately there was this couple that was charging their car they're having lunch this is I know this is a long story is this should I stop no, 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 this no, is no, good. Okay, okay. Oh, no, we're so, invested you now. Stop now. No, no, we're, <laughs> I know, I want to know what happens. <laughs> so the couple, the the fella uh, was so nice, really nice. And this is the best thing about an EV. You make friends. <laughs> you make friends. Because you, you have to make friends to survive. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, he spends, I don't know, 20 minutes with me uh, telling me, um, you know, pull down the app. You, here's how you do the app. Here's the charger you use. And okay, fine. Okay. Um, then I'm still waiting for these two cars to finish. He he finishes, but uh, you know, he says I, I need to charge it a little bit. I, he went to 80% or something and he was going to take it to 90 and it slows down something. The car next to him was completely charged, but the people were out, out having lunch or something and didn't come back. So I had to wait another in total. I probably waited 45 minutes to get the charger. I get the charger and then it takes me 10 minutes to figure out how to open the charger. Cause I'm thinking, I never thought it was a manual open. I thought there's gotta be some button inside the car that opens the charger, but no, this is a manual open. So I finally figure that out. And then it takes 45 minutes to charge. No lie. I'm not making this up. It took me three hours from start to finish to charge this car. Charge but car. you got some Wawa coffee in the meantime. No, And no. you made a friend. I, yeah. made friends, okay. oh. <laughs> I made two friends. I made two friends. I made two friends, but I won't tell you this about the second friend. That's just too much, too much information. So, you know, two, two friends. But here's the next, here's the thing. Now I'm driving to Fort Lauderdale and I'm sweating bullets the entire time. Am I going to make it to Fort Lauderdale? You know, because I can't quite, I don't quite know exactly. I guess they, there's something in the, someone told me later, the car will tell you if you can make it to Fort Lauderdale. But I couldn't quite figure out how to do that. So I'm, I turned off all the air. I turned off all the music. I didn't even, it was raining. I didn't turn on the wiper because <laughs> I was too scared. Sounds it's awful. Crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Am I, is it just me? Is this just me? Or am I like, do I represent you? Know, no, I, I mean, well, I don't, I don't have experience driving an EV, but I mean, I've been, reading quite a bit about experiences and listen to a podcast the other day, actually it was a New York times podcast about the Biden infrastructure bill. And it was talking about EV sales. And it said, you know, the number one reason why people say that they don't buy them is because they have this so-called range anxiety. Oh, they're afraid of running out of battery perfect. when they're driving. And it's really 
preventing higher sales. That's what I had. Bad case, bad case of that. Yeah. So, so Dan, you were telling us folks in your, uh, your footprint are pretty skeptical about EVs too, I guess. Yeah, this isn't my statistic, but a good statistic is so naturally, Marissa, you were saying there's what a million, more than a million vehicles that have been sold so far here today. Um, 1.2% of all vehicles in the U S are EVs or mm-hmm. PHEVs. So only 1.2%. Mm-hmm. So even mm-hmm. though it's 9% of new sales, only one right. mm-hmm. cars on the road in our footprint, which again is Michigan down to Texas, mm-hmm. uh, three tenths of a percentage point is the our EV. Share yeah. EVs. Yeah, and it's too- because they're too expensive um, for most of our, our customers just simply can't afford them. Uh, but it's also um, range anxiety and the, the the infrastructure. It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. People mm-hmm. don't want to build chargers because there's no EVs, and people don't want to buy EVs because there's no chargers. Um, but then third is the the preferences, right? You know, the 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 most popular vehicle in our footprint is a Chevy Silverado, mm-hmm. and I know that there are a couple of of pickup trucks that are, are EVs now. There's the F one fifty and there's the Rivian thing. Uh, but they just don't have the capabilities that a, a, a nice, you know, internal combustion engine pickup truck has. They don't have the towing capacity. They don't have the range. Um, and so people just don't, our customers are, are telling us that they just don't want them. Now there are, there are pockets within our area where they make total sense. So in our area around Columbus is probably the most concentrated area of EVs within our whole footprint. And there's EVs all over the place. Um, but they're, you know, they're all sedans. They're all people who are driving to work. They're not people who are driving to a ranch or people who need to tow something or, or things like that. So until those technological capabilities can come online and, and they can bring the prices down and they can build up more EV charging infrastructure, we just don't see it, at least within our footprint, is, is being... Pitching on, yeah. On. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, you Dan- made it, Mark. Oh yeah, and I'm I'm sure I'm just being a big baby, you know. So, uh, but you know, change is hard, Mark. Sometimes change is hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Dan, what's your? Do you want to go next? Do you want to do your statistic? Sure. Uh, my statistic is three point four megawatt hours. Megawatt hours. Uh, the it, time it takes to charge an electric vehicle. Right. <laughs> no. That's a lot of that's a lot of kilowatt hours. Three point four. It you is thirty four hundred kilowatt hours. Thirty four hundred kilowatt <laughs> hours. Is it the, the amount? Three four gigawatt hours. By the way, the first thing I learned when I moved to electric utility is that Doc Brown from Back to the Future is full of it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh really? <laughs> Boy, that's it's, disappointing. One point twenty one gigawatts is not a thing. It's one point twenty one gigawatts. Oh yeah, he said gigawatts. You're right. Yeah. So yeah. be be the new guy who comes into an electric utility and says gigawatts on the first day. <laughs> yeah, I'll pop it right. <laughs> who are you again? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, okay, well, is that the amount of electricity used by something? It is. Okay, and we got to figure out what that something is. That would be helpful. Yeah. Okay. Is that it, national or regional level? Um, it's a per unit kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, it's a per unit kind in of thing. In your footprint. Uh, nationally. Nationally. Yeah. Oh, okay. Nationally. nationally. Okay. okay. That was. Uh, and I, I don't really have a concept of how much 30, what is it, 3,400 kilowatt give hours? You so 3.4 megawatt hour, 3,400 kilowatt hours, depending on how yeah. you do it, 
is about an, enough electricity to run two refrigerators for a year. Okay. A year. Oh, okay. Okay. I, iPhone charging an iPhone for a year? No. No. Because uh, I use a lot of electricity charging an iPhone. Well, no, your your iPhone might be that much more. I don't, know. <laughs> no, I don't think the average iPhone is that much. Right. I, actually, my iPhone gets very hot regularly, so I'm sure I'm, yeah, I'm sure I'm using a lot of like, electricity. Uh, is it something is it in that the kind of statistic, like a utility, like a appliance or something? Yep, and I'll give you a hint. It's something we've been talking about a lot on the podcast so far. EV, an EV. Yeah. Oh, so it's an EV. Okay. The average EV takes okay. uses about three point four megawatts uh, megawatt hours of electricity uh, over the course of a year. So, in other words, if you bought uh, an EV and you were charging at your house, it would be the same in terms of your electric bill. It would be the same as buying two new full refrigerators and running them. Constantly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, and but, I mean that's the advantage of an EV. It does save money, right? Cuz I did notice when you charge it's a lot cheaper obviously than filling up your gas tank. So, I mean, you, yeah, you, and if you've got yeah. a home charger, it's really yeah. not a big deal at all. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Right. And you're not traveling point, long distance. Yeah, to our point of view, especially in our our footprint where we've got a, a very slow pickup in EVs, it is not a game changer in terms of, of load, right? Our residential load is not going to be double in 10 years because of EVs. It's going to take a long time for that load to, to pick back up. Right, right. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, uh, Chris, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. I've got uh, three numbers. 16, <laughs> 16.9 cents. I, I Stop. Everyone stop. I know exactly what it is, and I want full credit for this. You would know full the credit. other two numbers, too. The other two numbers? Oh, oh you, careful. This is like the guy jumping the, the gun on Jeopardy, Mark, and doesn't listen right, to the whole <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> 12. Uh, what, what is it? 12.6 cents. Okay. And 47.5 cents. Oh, oh, okay. Now it's more complicated. <laughs> okay. Well, what's the 16.9? 16.9 is the cost of a kilowatt hour of electricity nationwide as of the month of September. October. The only reason I know this is because that's my statistic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Guys, ding, ding, ding. ding. I look like a genius, but not started. really. No. Yeah. Is it 12.4? What 12. were the 6. other numbers? 12.6 and 47.5. Those might be the different cost by class? Nope. Oh boy, that would really be. That's yeah, that's that's uh that's what it was, pre-pandemic or something. No, the price. Well, it's the same release. It's the same month. Oh, same month. Okay. Yeah. Oh, um, it's all BLS data, CPI. Okay. Uh, twelve point six cents. Uh, and then forty-seven something cents. Forty-seven point five. It's got to be related to electricity. Uh, it is. Yep. Yeah. They're all uh, related to electricity. All they are. Yeah. Okay. They are. Yeah. Mm, I, is that the is that a seasonal difference in price? Nope. No. Oh, I thought Dan would be all over this. Hmm. Well, the, the, no, the cost per kilowatt hour made sense, but I'm trying to think of what else comes out in that report. They're all cost per kilowatt hour. They're oh, they are two all different. Cost, th these are the oh, high and peak, low. Of, is it peak and off peak? Oh, it's nope. different states. One state different. is um, oh. one state's Texas, Louisiana. Different cities. Oh, different oh. cities. One's New Orleans. 
No, no. Let me. Uh, let me. But get you know what I'm saying, right? No, no exactly. Cheyenne, Wyoming, and one's Hawaii or something. <laughs> no, Cheyenne, one Wyoming. Is Columbus, Hawaii is a good. Yeah, and one is Los Angeles. That's a good guess. Yeah. It's not. It's not Hawaii, but it's Hawaiian like. Hawaiian like. <laughs> don't tell. Us too far from you, Marissa. Is it L.A.? Nope. A little further south. San Diego. Diego. There you go. What, oh. 50, 40, I thought you were going to say Guam. I thought you were going to tell us a Guam or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the other one is St. Louis. Oh, oh, that's hard to believe. That's the low. Yeah. Hard to believe, right? Mm, so I, I thought, thought Dan be... could enlighten us with the Yeah. What's going on? Differences. Dan? Yeah. Uh, what's got is it regulation? Or... Well, I don't I don't know if I'm familiar with that BLS for that part of the BLS release because we we look at our own prices and we look at the national um, spot prices for electricity. But are those non-fuel rates or are those all in? These are all this is this is to the consumer. This is the this average. is the price to the consumer. Oh, well, then it, yeah. it's probably it's got to be the fuel price has got to be the difference. Huh. The cost of fuel in those areas and taxes though. Yeah, yeah, taxes thinking, probably. Taxes, yeah, regulation. Well, taxes, but the um, the riders that are included on it as well. Um, there's a there's a, a ton of different reasons why those could all be different. Yeah. Huh. That's that was a good one, Chris. I I only got to the top line number. I didn't get to the uh, regional detail, but uh, so uh, so St. Louis was out. the lowest, and San Diego was the highest. San Diego was the highest. Yes. yes. The forty-seven cents sounds like a lot. It is a me. lot. Well, it's, yeah. it's also the fuel mix, right? So one of the reasons that it's different, it's got to be, there's probably a lot more renewables going into San Diego. Yeah, less. yeah, probably, for sure. And yeah, yeah. St. Louis is probably all natural gas and coal, which is super cheap. Yeah. Hey, let's uh, let's move forward. I he, Since he took my statistic, I don't have a statistic, <laughs> so we're, we're the game over. Uh, but, uh, but I thought that was a, a very instructive particularly because I had an opportunity to tell you my story about EV. I that thought that was, was yeah, quite therapeutic. I feel better now that I told you. <laughs> you're not alone. I don't think you're alone. Mark. Okay. I, that's, that's the key here. I don't want to be like, yeah. I was a weirdo. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I am a weirdo, but I didn't want to feel like a weirdo. So. Not for this reason. Not for this reason. <laughs> not in this way. <laughs> not in this well, way. <laughs> Mark, can I ask you, speaking of you being a weirdo, can I yeah. ask one very serious question of you yeah. and Chris? I know that you guys were in Chicago a couple of weeks ago for the conference, and I felt bad. I was going to go and kind of oh, echo you guys from the back. That would have been great. And we were all there, too. Yeah, Marissa was there. Marissa was there, too. Yeah. But when you went, did you finally make Mark eat a Chicago-style hot dog? No. No one. What, what's that all about? No one told me about No. The last oh, time I was on, I was on the podcast, podcast, you were telling me about oh. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot all about that. Yeah. I did. Uh, yeah. I no one. I, Ryan almost fell out of his chair, I think, when you said that. <laughs> right, that's true. That's true. I forgot all about that. No, no, no. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, I had a, a nice steak, as I recall, but uh, no, no, hot no hot dogs, dogs were provided. No, yeah. Nope, no hot dogs provided. All right. Uh, well, let, let's. Uh, <clears throat> we're getting. Uh, uh, gee, an hour has passed. Is that possible? Oh my gosh. Okay. I do want to talk about one last thing, and that is uh, around the. Uh, policy to facilitate the transition to uh, uh, to green energy and the Inflation Reduction Act. <clears throat> Do you have a, a sense of that uh, legislation and how well it's going and how well you think it will go? Any perspective on the IRA? 
Um, it's definitely being effective at um, incentivizing folks to switch to um, uh, lower carbon um, forms of, of fuel and electricity um, production. Um, the PTCs and the ITCs in particular are definitely incentivizing folks to, to do more in terms of wind and, and solar. The tax um, credits, the production tax, tax credit, credits. Yeah, investment and, tax credit, yeah. production tax credit. Um, I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a dual policy measure, right? So the IRA um, is definitely the carrot to incentivize folks to try and do more. Um, the, the next thing that's coming and that we're all kind of trying to plan around is the stick that might come from the EPA, which is a 111D rule, which would give, you know, explicit penalties to folks who are, who are uh, burning certain types of fuel um, if they're not doing it the way that the EPA lays out. And so um, I think that that rule, it's been under discussion for a couple months now, and it, it probably wouldn't go into effect until next year. But it, going to your point earlier about the, the election, um, it, it's a very difficult time to try and put any sticks out there, um, especially, you know, three months before an election. I think it's going to come, um, but how whether it comes in its current form or not is, is it, but give you some sense of what that is, is it, it, it basically incentivizes folks um, to burn more um, hydrogen uh, along with natural gas. So it gets that next step. I talked earlier about switching from coal to natural gas is fairly straightforward, especially with the new um, uh, the IRA um, provisions, but switching mm -hmm. from natural gas to a, a new technology that's um, less of a carbon footprint than natural gas that's where things really get hard. And so the, you, you can't do it all on, on solar and wind alone. Something has to be able to, you have to be able to turn something on and off. And so building out new technologies around hydrogen is huge, but um, we don't produce enough hydrogen in the United States to be able to even come close to producing enough to, to do that yet. We also don't know how we're going to get the hydrogen to all the different places that we would need to do it or how we're going to produce the hydrogen. One of the, the cool things, this is where they, they, they were explaining engineering to me the other day and trying not to make me feel like an idiot. Mm. Um, did you know that there's like 11 different types of hydrogen based on how they produce it? And they all have right. a color. Oh, I thought hydrogen was just H. No, that's, that's what I thought. But, you know, I, I, I've been wrong about lesser things. So um, there's a whole rainbow of, of colors. Oh, rainbow of H's. Okay, didn't know and, that. No. And green hydrogen. Um, and you know, green and blue are the two that they're most focusing on. Blue hydrogen is, is hydrogen that's made from electricity, but it's huh. electricity that's produced by natural gas. So you're using natural gas to produce hydrogen to burn with natural gas to make electricity. Hmm. So kind of a roundabout way of doing things. And then green hydrogen. Does that is, reduce emissions, Dan, doing that? Is that, or it doesn't sound I, like it would. I, I need to have my engineers with me to tell me. Yeah. It. Okay. Okay, just curious. The, yeah. the other one that a lot of people are looking at more is green hydrogen, which is where you create, you use electrolysis to create hydrogen using green forms of electricity, so solar or wind. Um, and so you would basically have a, a, you know, a solar or a, a wind farm to create hydrogen, and then you would use the hydrogen to burn it large scale for, for more electricity. Um, that is very low emission, but again, the, the reliability issues around um, wind and solar are, are just not there yet. And so from a, an engineering standpoint, it, it, there's some really fascinating problems that need to be solved over the next five or 10 years. I think the policies that they're putting forward are, are trying to get people to think about that. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But if they don't think about those policies in, you know, with the end customers in mind, it could be a very expensive time for folks as all the utilities across the country try and get these regulations under control. So, Mm. yeah, I might put you in a bit of an awkward position and you, you, you can just tell me, Mark, you're putting me in an awkward position, but you know, my sense of climate policy is that the IRA is all about providing carrots to transition. You mentioned the various tax credits. There's, you know, subsidies. Taxpayers are paying mm-hmm. money to uh, incent you and I as consumers and utilities and businesses to move over to uh, cleaner technologies. Uh, that can only take you so far. It's very costly. And, you know, to the government, particularly if given now that the federal government has these pretty serious fiscal issues. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, deficits, debt, now high interest rates, it's not sustainable. So it doesn't feel like <clears throat> we can double down on carrots to make us, you know, move to something that is cleaner, lower CO2 emissions and more uh, helps out the environment. It feels like we're going to have to go to a stick at some point. And, you know, the economist's favorite stick when it comes to this is, just tax the carbon, you know, please, you know, put a tax on the carbon. Once you put the tax on the carbon, things happen pretty fast because people don't want to pay the tax. So they figure out technologies to do things without creating carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that way you could also generate some revenue. I mean, obviously there's issues with it regard to the regressivity of it uh, or, you know, that it, you know, it makes you in a less competitive against foreign producers that don't have the same carbon tax to pay, but there's clear ways of addressing those issues. So I don't know. It just feels like whether you think it is a good idea or a bad, it just feels like we're We got to get there at some point in time. There's just no way to do what we need to do with regard to reducing emissions to, you know, address climate risk without that. So I, that's, I'm on my soapbox and I don't, again, I don't, necessarily mean for you to respond to that but if you want to feel free yeah yeah i, I won't i won't respond to whether or not we should have a carbon tax because yeah. it, i think you're you're right in that we're gonna have a stick whether we think it's we should or not yeah they're coming and but our, what we're most focused on is our customers and what i'm worried about you know, some of the regressivity that you talked about carbon tax would be very regressive for a lot of folks across the country and it's you know, if we put too much of a stick in place where the cost of electricity, the kilowatt hour cost that Chris is talking about, if that goes up, you know, that's passed along to our customers. And some of our customers, especially those folks at the lower end of the income spectrum, uh, you know, they could have real issues being able to afford their electricity if we're not careful in terms of how we design those policies to uh, to be in place. And so I, whatever comes, we wanna make sure that our, our customers are first and foremost on our minds, but also on the utility commissioner's minds and on the, the federal policymakers' minds as they, they go about their, their policy making. Yeah, totally. I agree with you about the regressivity. I mean, what I do is I take the carbon tax, you generate revenue, I cut everybody a check. You know, and everybody gets a check for that. I'm making it up a thousand bucks, whether you make 50,000 a year or 5 million a year, you still get a thousand bucks. So that helps to address the regressivity, but nonetheless, so let's uh, we're, we're running out of time, but I do want to end uh, with a, a, a quick conversation around a listener question that we punted on. You might've heard it, uh, the question, Dan, if, if you were listening in, uh, the question is what economic statistic would you want 
if you could have it that you don't have right now. Did I say that right, Marissa? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that, and it could be anything, right? It could be anything. Like, could be some big data source or government collected statistic, anything. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to, Marissa, you're always first. So okay. I'm going to start with you. I yeah. mean, I think it would be, and again, this is very pie in the sky. This doesn't necessarily mean this is a realistic thing to collect or have, but something that would be useful to have would be more timely measures of productivity, I think. Oh, okay, so, yeah. um, you know, like we spend a lot of time pondering if various things are adding or detracting from productivity, right? AI, work from home, flexible work, all these things. And I think it would be really interesting to get, somehow get data on that, that is not six months old by the time we get it and quarterly. And um, so I don't know what it is or how you'd get it, but yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it would no, be I, really cool to have a more um, timely yeah. measure of product worker productivity. In, in a probably a, just a more a better one right because yeah the way it's calculated is kind of a bit convoluted and that's gets right. revised a lot yeah but that's such a key statistic because at the mm -hmm. end of the day our living standards are tied to our productivity growth so that's a good one um chris do you have one uh sure i guess in general i would say you probably have all the right statistics we just need better quality mm -hmm. higher frequency but right. if i had to choose right. one it would be um income right Coming from a credit modeling background, income was always the the holy grail. Mm. Could accurately measure a person's income. Yeah, the problem is, like guys like you with crypto winnings and you know <laughs> bank accounts and Bermuda and what do we do with you? I mean, how are we going to measure your income? Look, Dan, look how well he's dressed. Can you imagine? You know, he didn't dress wow. that nicely when I left. I don't know what happened. <laughs> exactly my point. Exactly my point. Yeah. All right. I hear you. That's a good one, though. Yeah, you're right. Income is a real. It sounds easy to measure, but it's really difficult to measure. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like the productivity thing, right? Like we get measures yeah. of income, but it's very exactly. lagged and it's yeah, it gets ma majorly revised. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Dan, do you have one you want? Uh, I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. You didn't have any. I would kind of echo Chris and I think we've got. I've got what I would like to have. I just would like to have it more often and I would like to have it at a lower frequency. So one of the things that's been frustrating about working here is that our footprint doesn't fit any, you know, specific metro areas or states perfectly. So we have to aggregate up a bunch of county level data and that data is just takes forever to update. And so like when we're back testing, doing things like that, it's difficult to tell whether the, the underlying economic data was correct in the first place because it's so lagged. So I would love for that granular of uh, geography to be available more often um, and at a, a lower frequency. You would love, Steve Cochran would be having a ball with some of our guys. We, we do a new spatial load model where we take the load and we- He's a colleague. He's a colleague who's been with us forever. Yeah. Yeah. We, we forecast it at a, a, a circuit level. So it's like a neighborhood. There's like 2,000 customers or so on a circuit. And so being able to take- not just how many EVs do we have, but how much EVs do we have on that circuit in Northwest Columbus, and which is these three neighborhoods. Uh, being able to have something of that granularity so that we can drive those forecasts would be, you know, the holy grail to Chris's point. You know what? That sounds like a business opportunity to me. I'm just saying, uh, 
guys i don't know feels like that yeah i was yeah. thinking we we can aggregate we can do that can't we do that i think we can do that anyway uh i want better immigration statistics mm. uh that's so key to everything population growth uh, household formations obviously by extension housing activity uh labor force growth unemployment, uh, how tight is the labor market? There's a, a lot of evidence that there's a lot more uh, undocumented work uh, uh, immigrants coming into the country than has been the case historically. In fact, I, I think when we get the data, it, you know, historically, we've kind of, the assumption is about a half a million undocumented come in every year. I think it's going to be two, two and a half million, something like that. And I think it goes a long way to explaining why we can grow two and a half percent GDP, which is where we started the conversation with inflation, not an issue inflation coming in, wage growth, moderating labor markets is, is easing up because we've got a lot more labor force out there than we think. And by the way, that goes to your productivity point, measuring the productivity of those immigrants, really important uh, to try and understand what that means in terms of their income, their output, uh, which goes to the fiscal situation and everything else. So, you know, if you can't count the number of people in, you know, in an economy, it's pretty difficult to get the economy right, you know, particularly if that's changing a lot. So just give me that. And by the way, that's a reasonable ask. You said, say, is it doable, not doable? That one is doable. We should, we should definitely do that. Anyway, um, that was a great, that was a great question from the listener. Uh, and they, if the listener is listening, we'd be very happy uh, to send you a cowbell uh, in, in honor of the question. It's a really good question. So, you know, email us, let us know. And we'll send you a cowbell. And uh, Dan, it was so good to see you. Uh, you. You look like you're doing really well. You still have a full head of hair. You know, look, look like Sansom over there. I mean, they're not working you hard enough is all I have to say. Uh, you know, not like Moody's Analytics. You know, we, we worked to death. We worked to, although I have to say, look at Chris and Marissa. They look, you know. They look awesome, Mark. They look awesome. It's the Zoom filter here. It's the Zoom <laughs> It's the touch up my appearance button. <laughs> it's the AI. Of course, it's the AI. Dan yeah. also has, I can see, a hard hat on his desk. Does he? Oh, yeah, he does. Wow. Yes. I got I got to go visit one of our power plants the other day, and um, I only hit my head once. So thank God for, um, for hard hats. Very cool. Well, thanks, Dan. Dan, it was really good to chat with you. And hopefully we can get you back on. Hey, can I ask you a favor? If your business starts turning south or north in a meaningful way, could you just send off a flare so we can talk about it? I'd we like will to let know. you know. Let me know. Let me know. Let us know. And uh, well, thank you. And um, with that, uh, dear listener, we're going to call this a podcast. Take care now. <laughs>